Are you familiar with the arcade game called Whack-A-Mole? Whack-A-Mole is a, is a game where you, you have a mallet, and before you are numerous holes in what is a make-believe ground where moles live. <laughs> and when the game starts, moles start popping their heads up out of the holes, and you have to act quickly to hit them down with a mallet. Now, the problem is they, they keep coming faster and faster, and you cannot whack them all down. <laughs> Eventually, you either put another quarter in the game or you, you just give up whacking the moles. Many think that the Christian life is supposed to be kind of like a whack-a-mole game with regards to our sins. There's a sin, whack, another, whack. Problem is, either you get pretty good at whacking down these obvious sins, but tend to overlook the sins of the heart like pride and independence from God. This is the experience of the moralist or the legalist. But then there are many who also think the Christian life is about whack-a-mole in their sins and they just kind of stink at it. And so they tend to give up. They either give up or stop hanging out with the moralists. <laughs> and if the church has a bunch of moralists in it, well, they might stop joining in with the body altogether. I don't know, it might be a stretch, but do you see this whack-a-mole tendency in yourself? Perhaps you think this is the only way, but it's not. There's another way, a way that gets to the root of our problem and allows us to really put away sin. Oh, not all in one day. I wish that were true. But over our lives, slowly but surely, we become more like Christ. And not just on the outside, but on the inside too. We're moving along in our sermon series, Walking in Faithfulness. And today we're in Colossians chapter 5, and we're at verses uh, 5, Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. My friends, this is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach a difficult passage today. Our tendency will be to downplay it, to not trust you in your word. And so we pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and help us then to believe and receive and hope, we pray. Amen. 
Well, it was a beautiful day two Saturdays ago. I'm sure you remembered it if you're out here on the east end of Long Island. And I thought I would tackle a renovation project that had been on my mind. And one of the sets of steps leading up to a deck in our yard, on our patio, needed replacing. The wooden treads uh, and the risers had begun to rot, and they were getting squishy and soft. And in a few spots, there were actually holes forming. Truth be said, I've been putting off this work for months. You know how it is. But now I had all the materials, and I had a beautiful day, so no more excuses. And so I began to rip out the old boards. Now, it was far harder than I ever imagined. It took three of us with hammers and pry bars and saws over two hours to remove the decking on the steps. Oh, and I forgot to mention... um, There were only four steps in total. Sixteen short boards was all there was. But the nails had rusted securely into the stringers, and and some of these boards were in difficult places that made extraction tough. Finally, after two hours, the old treads and risers were removed and put away in a trash pile forever. In the end, it took far longer to tear away the old rotten wood than it did to lay down new. And the next few days, my body was sore. (laughs) You know, I don't know, how is it that pulling nails and tugging on boards gives you sore hamstrings for three days? (laughs) I know, don't tell me I'm getting old. I'm sure that's what you're saying. Well, it was hard work, but worth it. And thankfully, I had some help. We were motivated to tear down and to tear out the old and put in the new because, because the old was dangerous and harmful and the new was healthy and appealing to look at. But what kept me, us, going was the hope of glory. At the time of struggle and bruised knuckles and bloody fingers, it seemed unpleasant, kind of like a death. But out of the death came newness of life and joy. All right, it was just some steps. But even if it was only four simple steps up to a deck, that also, uh, by the way, needs replacing any volunteers, um, it was uh, a beautiful deck, beautiful steps nonetheless. My friends, that is what Paul is kind of describing in our passage. Look at Colossians 3 verses 9 through 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The Christian life is a renewal. It is about putting on who we really are now um, by virtue of our union with Christ. And as we saw last week, the Christian has died with Christ and has been raised to new life in Christ. And our life is now all about Christ. We see this at the end of our passage. It's a great conclusion to what we've just read. What we read there is this, but Christ is all and in all. This means that Christ is everything. That's the argument of Paul in this letter to the Colossians. Jesus is supreme over all things, for he created and sustains all things in heaven and on earth. We've seen Paul tell us that Jesus is God Almighty. He's the Redeemer and Savior. He is the one who has conquered sin and death. And he has risen and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And if you are a Christian, Christ is now your life. 
for you have been raised to new life in him. And as we saw last week, last week our, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And one day the fullness of God's glorious plan will come to pass and you and I will participate in that fully restored physical, spiritual, new heaven and earth. And so yes, Christ is all and in all. It is because of who we now are in Christ that we must agree with Paul that we must put off the old self, that self that, that just rushed into sin and enjoyed it, and put on the new self that is being renewed after the image of its creator in goodness and purity, love and holiness. In other words, we're to put away that old self that is dead and put on the new self, pure, lovely, holy, joyful. And this is what is already ours in Christ Jesus. So the Christian says, yes, I'm called to pursue Christ's likeness, holiness, purity, but, but it's hard. I've tried so many times. And this sin keeps hanging on. It's like dandelions. You, you pluck the plants, but the weeds keep coming back. Well, that's because you have to get the root out. In our passage, Paul helps us to see that, that the roots, um, and by God, helps us to see the roots, and that by God's grace to be able to pull them out and become more and more renewed in the image of Christ. And so what we'll be studying this morning is this truth. Because we have already died to our old self, and we are now already alive in Christ, we must put to death uh, and put away all that is unholy in us. But as we will see, living this way feels a lot like dying. Hence, our sermon titled, Dying to Live. We will look at two points this morning. First, we'll look at the point of putting to death and then putting away. First, put to death. The big idea here in this first point is this. It's that sin at its root tears at the soul-refreshing, happy life God has for his children. So we must kill off all that hinders our relationship with God. We see this starting in Colossians uh, 3, verse 5. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Notice he doesn't say get along with it or, or make room for it. Um, all that is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. Now, at first glance, verse 5 seems to be a run-of-the-mill list of bad traits, but there's more going on here. There is a progression. Did you notice that they go from external to internal? Paul starts with the physical, outward expression of sin, in this case, sexual immorality. And then he sort of peels back the layers. And it is important to see why. What's behind all of this? Paul pulls back layers and, and takes us down into the deep motives of our hearts. And what's behind it all, um, he takes us down there so we can come to understand that sin is more than just a surface behavior issue. Sin adheres to the very roots of our humanity, warping and distorting and biasing us against, against our Lord. All that is good, all that is holy, all that is in his word. 
Paul begins with this outward manifestation of sin. Paul, the, the word Paul uses for sexual immorality is porneia. It might sound like a familiar word. We get the word porn, pornographic, things like that. The word, though, in the Greek covers a broad range of sexual sins, including prostitution, premarital sex, adultery. Essentially, all sexual activity outside the good God-given environment for sexual intimacy. That would be a, a marriage covenant between husband and wife. You know, in Paul's day, sexual immorality, unless in extreme excess, was not considered bad. Guess what? Same today too, right? As Paul peels back the layers, the next word in this list is impurity. And so he says beneath sexual immorality, there's impurity. Impurity is much broader. When impurity is present, it takes, listen, it takes the good things of God, marriage, sex, work, food, possessions, and pollutes them in such a way that they become bad. For instance, sex is an enjoyable gift from God, meant to unite husband and wife in love, but, but people make it impure by taking it out of God's good setting of marriage. The, the, the same is true for everything. The uh, same is true for possessions, right? Possessions aren't inherently evil, but our in, possessions become impure and sinful when we hoard them for our own glory. Next is passion. Passion isn't necessarily a bad thing. We could all use a little passion in our lives. But when our passions are misplaced, when they're not on Christ and his kingdom and his goals for us, then our corrupt passions move us towards impurity. Evil desires are the next layer below our passions. Evil desires refers to the longings of our hearts. Desires can be good or they can be bad. Desires inflame our passions, either for good or for evil. Godly desires produce godly passions. Evil desires produce misguided evil passions, which lead to impure uses of the good things that God gives us. You see how this is working. And if you lift up your evil desires to see what is underneath, Paul says that you will find the last thing, covetedness, which is idolatry. Paul is showing us what we arrive at when we peel back all the layers. So you have this outward sexual sin, which is the impure use of something good God has given mankind. And below that, this, this impurity lies a passion that flows from evil desire that has its roots in, in covetedness, which is idolatry. And now, an idol is essentially a God substitute. It doesn't need to be some thing you whittle out of wood. Usually it's not. Um, we turn from God to idols in the hope that they will satisfy us, that they will give us meaning, purpose, status, an enviable identity. And so we bow down to career or comfort or possessions or security or fill in the blank. And so the business major in college covets being successful in the marketplace and making a name for himself to prove that he is somebody. If that sounds like a familiar story, that was mine, okay? And, and what takes place? An idol comes to form in his life. And, and from this covetedness, this, this wanting of something um, that is, is not good or holy flows evil desires. I'm going to run a large company someday and have thousands who report to me and the evil desire to become a big shot drives unholy passions in him. And now he's all in. Nothing will get in his way. 
And the corrupt passions drive him to take good things like work and fellow employees and begin to impurely relate to them. He sees his co-workers as either threats or as a means of advancement. And in this impurity, he begins the outward sins, lying, flattery, gossip, backstabbing. Did you follow the flow? Cheating and lying are just the visible sins that have far deeper roots. They begin with covetedness, and they move to evil desires, and then evil passions, and then impurity with something good that God has given us, and it becomes an outward sin. This pattern helps us in a couple of ways. It means that we cannot any longer try to live with our sin. I hope you realize that. We cannot resolve to have a a peace accord with our old sinful nature. We must kill it off. As the great Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen famously wrote, I think I quoted him last week, right? He said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This pattern that we looked at also helps us to see the futility of the whack-a-mole approach to sin. Do you get that? Just as whacking the visible outward sin does nothing to get at the heart of our sin, right? And, and so the question we need to ask ourselves is not, what must I do to stop this outward sin that everybody sees? But rather, what is the underlying covetedness, the idolatry that has led my heart away from God? And then the truth of last week's passage comes to our help. Remember last week, right? These, these verses all go together. It was one big letter. It was all read aloud. And so, but today we're just looking at verses 5 through 11. But verses 1 through 4 are meant to be our source of help. There we read, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who, by the way, is your life right now, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's Paul's argument. The Christian life isn't about taking up a mallet to hit your sins down. It's about lifting your eyes to heaven to see that you truly have died in Christ. That's what he's done for you. He's done for me. It's past tense. And you have been raised with Christ. Past tense. The real you, as God sees you, as you are going to be one day in glory, is hidden with Christ in God, present tense. And now, therefore, Christ is your life, present tense. And one day, future tense, that beautiful, glorious, Christ-like life will be in full possession. And so Paul's argument is, is seek the things above, that, set your mind on things above. This is who you really, truly are. You, you, the old you is dead, and this is the new you. Now, here's what happens when our hearts and minds take delight in what God has done for us and we see God's good plans for us. We trust in him. We become, listen, content in God. And check this out. Think about it. Contentment is the opposite of covetedness. If you don't believe me, do the, do, the, do the search on the internet. That's what will come up. And check this out. When we rest in God's grace towards us, God's contentment takes roots in our lives and it drives out the covetedness 
and idolatry, and instead of idols, our hearts attached to our Creator. Now, and check this out. Look at the pattern that now takes over our lives. What we see now is contentment leads to good desires. Good desires lead to holy passions. Holy passions lead to purity with the things God has given us. And purity leads to outward manifestations of goodness. Do you see that? Amazing. Kind of changes the whole way we look at who we are. It changes how we now see our lives in Christ. How we now look at sin. It goes much deeper than just the surface. It's not good enough to play the moralist and deal with the surface. We must get to the root, to the heart of the matter. So that's the first of two points. Paul is saying we must put to death what is earthly in us. Sin at its root tears at the soul-refreshing, happy life God has for his children. So we must kill off all that hinders our relationship with God. Now, in addition to putting sin to death, Paul says we are to put all sin away. Now, the big idea here is that sin has the potential to destroy others that we're in relationship with and to tear apart the body of Christ. And so we must put all sin away. In verse 8, Paul presents another list of five vices. Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The, The first list dealt with sex. The second list deals with speech. These are really, right? These are the two major ways in which we sin. Also, I don't know if you noticed it, but the first list addressed our heart's actions towards God. The second list addressed our heart's actions towards our fellow man. Also, whereas the first list moved from outward sins towards the heart, this list moves from the heart, anger, to the outward actions, slander, obscene talk. Paul says, put them all away, like those rotten deck boards that I pulled up from the steps and then put them away in a pile to be taken to the dump. Let's look at the progression with these five sins. First is anger. N.T. Wright describes anger here as the continuous state of smoldering or seething hatred. This is an abiding, settled habit of the mind. Revenge is in view here. We tend to get angry when we don't get what we want. Things don't work out the way we think they should. And it's incredibly easy to justify ourselves, isn't it? Yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. And we too have a righteous, ang- we, are, we, we should have a righteous anger towards injustice in the world. But if I had to guess, uh, I'm guessing maybe 99% of the time that we get angry, it is not a righteous anger. It's just merely sinful anger. And it is out of anger that we so often say things that hurt others. 
Paul is saying that believers must put off anger. We must strip it off like the rotting deck boards it is. We are, to, we are to strip it off like dirty clothes and throw them away. Next after anger is wrath. Listen, wrath is anger brought to a boil. You can be angry in your heart and then someone does something that offends you and you rage inside. Next is malice. Malice can be described as the refusal to forgive. No, I don't care. I've got my reasons. I've got it all figured out. You're out of line, and I'm not giving in an inch. From malice comes slander. It's the verbal tearing down of others out of malice towards them. She never gives me what I deserve. She always has an excuse, so forget it. I'm done. Unless she changes, I'm not changing. I'm justified for feeling the way I do. She's weak. She's a manipulator. She's a hypocrite. You see that? Slander. Oh, you might think you're right in what you're saying, but you're slandering. But slander can also be subtle. We can kind of make it sound holy. Hey, did you, uh, did you, hear, the, you hear Bob's getting a divorce? Oh. Oh, you didn't hear? Yeah. He kind of had it coming, right? I mean, he stopped coming to our men's group two years ago, and now his marriage is a wreck. Well, let's pray for him. The fifth sin listed is obscene talk. The underlying Greek word means shameful. Obscene talk can, can be anything from cuss words to lewd comments to crude jokes to taking the, 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 the Lord's name in vain. It's the opposite of David's prayer at the end of Psalm 19. Maybe read that psalm later today. After opening Psalm 19 by meditating upon how God's creation pours forth speech day and night that brings him glory, it proclaims God's glory, David ends the psalm how? Amazingly, by considering his own speech and how it too must glorify God. He writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Paul shows us that our hurtful and shameful words don't just pop up out of nowhere. They begin in our hearts and usually rise up out of anger. I don't know about you, but I've come to realize that I can have anger in my heart without really having anything to be angry over. It's like it's just there on the lookout for something to seethe over, something unforgivable. How about you? Why does Paul present this list of five sins that promote hurtful speech? Well, the first, ver the first list in, of five verse, in verse 5 dealt with issues between us and God. The second list, like I said, deals with issues between us and others that we must put off. Paul is concerned about the spiritual health of this church in Colossae. This letter is written so that they would be able to what? Remember, walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. That they are to bear fruit in every good work. This church is the visible body of Christ in the city of Colossae. 
And just as renewal from heaven comes into each believer's individual life, so too life from heaven is to manifest itself in the body of believers together. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13? He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love not anger, love not wrath, love not malice, love not slander, love not obscene talk. My friends, the the church as the body of Christ is meant to display to the world the love, the patience, the tenderness, the mercy, the grace, the hope, the happiness and joy that God displays in heaven. We are to demonstrate that the kingdom of our Lord has come and is changing us together. (laughs) What does this all mean for us? It means we're to be, listen, it means we're to be angry at our sins, not other sinners. God will take care of his own. You focus on yourself. It means we have to put away all speech and its underlying anger. We need to put it in the trash pile. Will you do that? Do you see the need for that? Do you want that? You can do it. My friends, this becomes a reality for us as we, what, seek things that are above where Christ is. As we set our minds on things that, that are above and not on, on earth, and not on earth. This means we dwell on Christ, who he is for us, how he has forgiven us and others with an eternal forgiveness. And therefore, how could we ever be angry with another human being in, in, in a sinful way? It means we keep coming to Christ. His love towards us means we see how foolish it is to harbor malice towards others. And we start to live generously with others, like Christ has lived generously with us. We seek to turn the other cheek because Christ has turned the other cheek with us over and over and over, right? Now, Paul gives us this list with the calling, you must put them all the way because he is concerned with how we relate to each other as the body of Christ. And how do we know that this is a communal, um, a communal command? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. It's all relational. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, Here, in the body of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But listen, but Christ is all and in all. Do not lie to one another. This is more than like fibbing. You know, this is, this is more than like lying and saying you own like 10,000 shares of Apple stock, right? That's not what's going on here. It's part of it. But th- this has to do more with, with hypocrisy and our, and our, and our, and our willingness um, to be exposed and vulnerable. Paul is saying, stop lying. In other words, he's saying, stop pretending. Stop acting like you, you have your sin well managed. You don't. Stop acting like you can put away sin all by yourself. You can't. Stop lying by saying, oh, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. 
when really you're hurting on the inside. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. No, let me correct that. It must be lived in community. I know that's really hard right now with social distancing. But you can pick up the phone. You can dial in on Zoom. You can talk with people. You can share your burdens with them. We are able to help each other put to death what is earthly in us. And so... We must be done with the faking it approach that is everywhere in the church in America today. We must stop lying about our spiritual well-being and putting on a good show, knocking down a few whack-a-moles of our sin and showing everybody how good we are. No. Now, I know you cannot share all your struggles with everyone in the church. Probably wouldn't be a good idea. But it does mean that you, that you can have one, two, three or more men or women that you're honest with, and they are with you. And it takes time. It just doesn't happen the first time. You keep meeting together, and slowly you peel back the layers, and you start being truthful and honest with one each other. You stop pretending. And as you become truthful with each other and accountable to each other, it is then that what is earthly in you begins to be put to death. It's hard at first to be vulnerable, to be honest, And at first, it really does feel like death. But give it time. Trust me, it will bear fruit. And not a -a whack-a-mole false fruit, but genuine renewal deep in the heart. And as this true fruit begins to grow in you, my friends, you will love it. You will enjoy it. You will say, you will say with other Christians who've been living this way for a while, you will say, I cannot believe it took me so long to discover how God meant for me to live a renewed life in this community. See, Jesus didn't give you a new life in him to just fix things between you and God. He gave us new life in him that we can put it on today so that things would be fixed between you and others. That is why he says what he says in Colossians 3.11 here in, in the church. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Christ is all and in all. My friends, there has never been more bitter animosity between two groups of people than between the Jews and the Greeks, or the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews call the Gentiles dogs. Now, that wasn't God's intention. It's just what happens when the hearts of God's people are far from God. They begin name-calling and rebuking and hating. The next grouping is amazing as well. It's barbarian and Scythian. So, understand this. In the Greco-Roman world, there were Greeks and then there were barbarians. Uh, they got the name because when they talked, it sounded like ba 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 ba. So they called them barbarians. All right, Greeks were the educated city dwellers. The barbarians were looked down upon like like savages, or maybe in America like a redneck. But check this out: there's actually something worse than barbarians, and they were Scythians. Scythians were also barbarians, but of the worst sort, so bad that even barbarians despised Scythians. See, for centuries they were raiding and invading from the north. 
And so the Jews looked down on the Greeks and the Greeks looked down on the barbarians and the barbarians looked down on the Scythians and the Scythians were like looking around and they're like, all right, I guess we're at the bottom. But then there was another great divide we see here. And what is that? The divide between slave and free. How could, how could, how could they ever all get along and be part of the same body? The answer is Christ. Only Christ can make it so that in his body of people, there is not Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. And how is it? Well, it's how Paul ends verse 11. How? But Christ is all and in all. Listen, when Christ is your everything, then you realize there is nothing now that separates you from any other sinner saved by grace. Nothing. Did you know that in the early church, there were slaves that held offices in the church of like deacon or an elder? And check this out. In those churches, there were slave owners who faithfully submitted to the leadership and oversight of the slaves. Imagine that. Only Christ can bring that about. Doesn't that change how you see others in the church? And consider this true story. In 202 AD, two Christian women in Carthage, Perpetua and Felicitas, uh, they, were, they were members of the same church there. And they were rounded up along with three men under the brutal persecutions of Emperor Septim, uh, Septimius Severus. Perpetua was a slave owner. Felicitas, yeah, her slave. They had converted to Christianity together. And, and, that was, and, and now Christianity was against the law. And they were sentenced to die in the arena with wild animals. But the sentence had to wait because Felicitas was due to give birth. Then shortly after giving birth and giving this child to a Christian woman in her church, the, the date was set. And the jailers, seeing her, how she had moaned in childbirth, they asked her how she expected to be able to face the beasts in the arena. They would tear her apart. Her answer is typical of many martyrs. She said, now my sufferings, like in her body giving birth, now my sufferings are only mine. But when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. They brought her and the others inside the Colosseum. The three men died violently. The last one, Secundulus, was killed by a leopard. Perpetua and Felicitas were attacked and viciously thrown about. Finally, the the two bleeding women stood in the middle of the arena. Felicitas, the slave, and Perpetua, her master, but in Christ they were equals. And they bid each other farewell with the kiss of peace and died by the sword together. They died not as master in slave, but as sisters in the Lord. For Perpetua and Felicitas, Christ was all and in all. Grace Church, 
I believe we affirm this too. For us, Christ is all and in all. He's everything for us. Now, may we live in light of this truth. Let us kill sin at its root. Let us put away all sinful speech and and hearts of anger. Let us stop pretending and let us start depending. Let us put off the old self with its sinful practices and let us put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's pray. Father, we confess that putting sin to death seems like death. Help us to embrace our calling. Help us to draw near in faithful dependence upon Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Have your way with us. Change us from the inside out, we pray. Amen.